Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. Hi, this is Joseph Haar in wet and rainy Singapore, out for a hike and listening to the best podcast that there is. The Tennis Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Joseph, for your support this year and in previous years. Uh, much appreciated by all of us here on the Tennis Podcast. Uh, hello, Catherine. How are you today? Hello, David. I am the same as every other day of late. Yes. Yeah, there's not much variety in our lives at the moment. However, there's lots of room for podcasts. That's why we're doing two a week, even though there's no tennis. Matt, how are you? See above. Yes, <laughs> I am fine. Thank you. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's lovely, this, isn't it? Oh, I'm in the same room. Thank to goodness the... for Joseph Haar. Yeah, jolly. Perk us up a bit. Good old Joseph. Um, and we've got, another, we've got the fourth and final edition of our Worst Ofs podcasts which uh, is a series that began with us uh, going through I our don't speak too soon david i i have a feeling like a worst of instagram lives might be in our future <laughs> worst of tennis instagram like i feel like there's enough content for that already yeah there's a, there's, there's too much of that content already there's the there's the first worst of there's too much of it can't keep up with it all and much of it i don't like uh but anyway the beauty of the instagram lives being so bad is that they disappear so in like two years time when we're doing worst of the coronavirus period thankfully we will have no way of going back to watch there'll be no public record of just how awful it was Mm. the the funny thing is the first it it absolutely started with a with a bang didn't it because they had federer and adal together they had murray and Djokovic together everybody all of that happened in like a a a 48 hour period yeah everybody guys we were in this for the long haul (laughs) space out the good stuff There, there was a moment where where people were i heard people say saying, oh, let's do lots of classic matches. And uh, the Tennis Channel ran Roland Garros week about three weeks ago. I'm thinking, <laughs> what are you going to do when you get to Roland Garros? <laughs> and, and there is no the Roland Garros. And the second Roland Garros. Yeah. I think they've since done 
Wimbledon and the US Open, haven't they? Crikey. I mean, look, you know, all, all power to them. I love their enthusiasm. They get great panels of, of guests together, including our very own Mary Carrillo. Um, so uh, no complaints there. But yeah, it's um, it's been a lot of content to keep up with lately. And we're just adding to it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you're enjoying ours. And what do you think the sorry, David, I keep interrupting you. But what do you think the Instagram lives will look like in like November? <laughs> Oh, maybe that maybe they'll get their dogs on together. How about that? You like no, that, dogs you? will happen in like July. Okay, November is like it's going to be bad. I think they'll have invented a really new bad. a new platform. I don't think Instagram Lives will exist <laughs> in November. Is what I think. I think the players will just be utterly bored of that. And look, occasionally you get some gems in these conversations. And look, and the tennis fans who aren't us. I seem to see quite a lot of enthusiasm for these things. But whenever I've watched them, I've sat there for a long, long time waiting for the good bits. And there are you the occasional good bits. And you can't bits. scroll if you're watching it not live. And that really bothers me because you have to be prepared to dedicate, you know, an hour and a half. And I know we're, we're, we're in the very privileged position where we are immersed in tennis. So therefore we have heard most of what they have to say before. So we're just sort of sitting there waiting for the the nuggets yes. uh, in amongst the stuff we've heard many times before. Yeah. But as um, I was saying about four minutes ago, uh, we... Anyway, I found a way to be grumpy about, you know, golden, unprecedented uh, <laughs> tennis content. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we started off with the, our worst predictions ever. And that required two episodes when we only planned one. Um and then we went on to worst Grand Slam finals ever, which uh, I particularly enjoyed. And now, today, we are going to do the worst of the greats, the worst of the big three. Now, inevitably, uh, Tennis Twitter's had a field day with this and decided to, to get its, uh, itself in a bit of a tiz. Uh, I don't care. Um, the fact of the matter is we've spent, I think, 650 plus episodes bigging up every movement that they make and we revere them as much as anybody. However, they ain't perfect. And at times like this, their occasional cock-ups, be it on court or off court, are going to be talked about on this podcast today. And I can't wait. Yeah, I refuse to engage with defending or pointing out that Federer, Nadal and Djokovic have lost tennis matches in their lives. Like, I'm I'm just not prepared to engage with uh, trolling of, of that. Okay. You can't defeat internet stupid, David. We've been over this. Right. Okay. So there we are. That's clarified. <laughs> um, so, yes, we are going to talk about the big three who've been around in our lives. I mean, Roger Federer has been in, around in my life for nearly half of it. Uh, 1998 uh, was when he first came along. Uh, Matt's doing a really polite face at that comment. In 1998. He's he's been around for all of my life. How old were you in 1998, Matt? Uh, I turned two in 1998. Matt did a really gracious, ooh, that's impressive face there. So, uh, without further ado, we're going to get Matt as the youngest member of the Tennis Podcast this particular three, to um, to go over and start with the research he's done on the oldest member of the big three, Matt. 
Yes, I've spent the last day doing Federer research. This is very much my sweet spot. Um, basically going to take it in chronological order. And as you've touched on, David, these are mainly on-court stuff, like as much as tennis Twitter would interpreted our tweet as kind of reasons to hate them. This is this is not that. This is just pointing out the moments in their career where they've not been at their best. Stop really. talking about tennis Twitter, everyone. Yes, it's a, sorry. It's a quagmire of bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Whittaker there. Um... Anyway, so I'm going to, I'm probably just going <laughs> anyway. um, to hand this one straight back to you, David, because I'm actually starting in 1999. And really, I think this is the main thing to say is that Federer had, certainly compared to Nadal and Djokovic, he had a start to his career where he wasn't just dominant right from the start. Certainly, Nadal was a big teenage force and Djokovic as well, although to a slightly lesser extent. So if you go back to the late 90s, early 2000s, there are these wonderfully strange results that Federer had. Um, in total, in his career, he's lost only four six-love sets, which is, a, is an incredible stat, really. Even more incredible, three of those came in 1999. In April, to Vincent Spadio, Monte Carlo. In May, to Pat Rafter on his Grand Slam debut at Roland Garros. And then in June... He lost 6-3, 6-love to Byron Black at Queen's. And he's never been back to Queen's since. No. And he's always opted to play Haller. Do you want to tell that story, well, David? The, the thing is, I remember when he arrived at Queen's that year. And it was the first time I'd seen him play on grass. Obviously, the year before, he'd won Wimbledon boys and i met him for the first time straight after that the, the next day in gestard where he made his professional debut and then in 1999 he he came over for queens and he played nottingham as well um he'd 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 beaten carlos moyer earlier that year and he's only 17 at that point roger federer went to to nottingham yeah i think he i think he lost first round there as well the the sort of the municipal tennis facility in Nottingham where I played at university. Yeah, so your paths could have crossed. Because you, I think, you, no, you weren't at university at that point. You were only about 10. Um, no, that is what's funny. That or Serena Williams playing Eastbourne. Oh, I think Federer playing Nottingham is, is <laughs> sensational, but, really. But Serena played Eastbourne. In her like, pomp. In her pomp. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Anyway, I've got this wonderful mental image of Federer in Nottingham, David. That's great. Yeah. Do you think he, he stayed in that hotel above the Hooters? <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. Um, but what it a, was, When I was at uni, the nicest hotel in Nottingham was above a Hooters. And it was oh, it's just bleak. Anyway, blimey. sorry. Did you ever... Like, no. No. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> just thought I'd check. Um, so... <laughs> I remember him arriving to Queen's and I said, so grass court tennis, what do you think? And he said, oh, I like it. I like it. You know, you can do all, and he sort of, he sort of motioned as if to say, you can do all this stuff as though he was doing little wafty touch strokes that you can't really do anywhere else. And I thought, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, and then I think in in that particular year, it proceeded to, to rain for about two days solid. Um, and uh, yeah, it didn't go very well. And Byron Black is actually a really accomplished player of that kind of tennis, of that sort of just get everything back, make it awkward, 
clever player and Federer with these really flamboyant extravagant strokes was unable to to play at all um and got beaten <laughs> in little over an hour um and as you say he then went on to Haller started having good results and never looked back was Haller in a, a really established tournament before Federer kind of turned it into one I know it hasn't got the long history that Queens has got but in the 90s like who was going to Hallow over Queens well, or it, was it, it all, really Queens Hallow launched in 1993 and and it launched with a real bang because it it heralded the the return of Andre Agassi after a very serious wrist injury and the year before Agassi had won Wimbledon and without any preparation at all. He hadn't played any grass court tennis at all, came to Wimbledon and won it in 1992 from the baseline against Becker, Ivan Izovich, John McEnroe. Uh, and then he'd had this really bad wrist injury, and then Haller starts, and he has his return after many months out of the sport in Haller, and he was wearing a wrist wrist strapping, I remember, played Karl-Uwe Stabe, the local German favourite at the time, and lost in the first round. And that kind of started Haller off, put it on the map. I think for several years it was it was particularly in the shadow of, of Queen's, and, and also because Boris Becker still played Queen's. You know, that was quite a big deal. Um, but, yeah, when, once Federer went there, that elevated it, certainly, because he became synonymous with it and obviously became the most recognisable tennis player on the men's side in the world. That's incredible recall of past Haller results, David. <laughs> yeah, absurd. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just to take it forward a little bit, uh, Federer obviously beats Sampras at Wimbledon in 2001. That was his big breakout result. Um but then I'm fascinated by this next period, which is really 24 months, really, before he wins Wimbledon in 2003, of people questioning, people wondering whether there's there's going to be this gap between his talent and his results and, you know, waiting for him to make good and do more after that Sampras win. Um, he won some small titles, Sydney, Vienna, Marseille, Munich, but really it's his slam results that interest me most. He... He lost before the quarterfinals at seven straight slams. Um, and in particular, he had some losses in round one at Roland Garros in 2002 to Arazi, at Wimbledon in 2002 to Ang And then in Roland Garros 2003, he goes in as the fifth seed and he loses to Luis Horner in the first round. Um, and I just wanted to bring up this, this poem, actually, that... John Wertheim first, wrote. First ever poem on the tennis podcast. Mm. Now, he's brought this up himself recently in one of his mailbags, so I don't, I don't feel bad for bringing it up here. I think he's really owned this, and I think it was written quite tongue-in-cheek at the time. But, he, but to try and give a sense of what the narrative was around Federer, I thought this was perfect. Um, he, wrote, he wrote a poem to be sung to the tune of If Only I Had a Brain from The Wizard of Oz. Is it not just as if it's a... If it's words to a tune, is that not a song? <laughs> well, maybe, yes. <laughs> poem sounded. Are you saying poems so that you don't have to sing it, yes, Matt? Yes, that, basically right, that. Okay, yeah. rumbled. Right. Um, so here goes. It's only six verses. If you want... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Take it away. If you want to win a wager, bet against me in a major... I can barely hold my serve. 
I play exquisitely in patches, but choke in big-time matches, because I have no nerve. Too bad I'm not more gallant, as I have vast amounts of talent, plus I play with verve. But there's love and not much kissing when I'm doing my Swiss missing, if only I had some nerve. A potentially big payday leads to cries of Roger, mayday. My results form a sine curve. My vast unmet potential owes to factors existential, if only I had some nerve. Wow. That is. So, a... I mean, that hasn't aged well. <laughs> <laughs> For a couple of years it did. When, when well, did he He wrote pen that, that on after the Roland Garros 2003, and then Federer won the next Grand Slam. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it helped. Well, maybe Federer, maybe, maybe Federer read it. Maybe, maybe Peter Lundgren stuck it up on the dressing room wall. Like I, I mean, do. I can imagine finding that incredibly motivating to have that written about you. You know, completely legitimately, it sounds like. But it is marvelous. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's it's savage. <laughs> totally savage. That two thousand and two loss to Ancic at Wimbledon. That was the first ever match I watched on Centre Court. I was on the front row with my friend Grace. And that was uh, the day after we'd camped overnight on the street without a tent uh, to get Centre Court tickets, which I, I, I just the one parenting blip on my on my parents record. I can't believe uh, that I just, just slept rough. <laughs> without a tent um, to get into Wimbledon. I'm very grateful they did let me do that. Maybe they didn't know I was tentless. Anyway, uh, and the the very first match I watched was, actually it must have been second, because I think it was on the Tuesday. Um, so you would have had the women's defending champion playing first. Um, so maybe not the first match I watched but anyway the certainly the most memorable because suddenly there was this this huge upset developing um before our eyes I mean okay Mario Ancic was was a thing and and known to be very comfortable on grass but I remember I'd been watching the BBC coverage the day before on the opening day of the championships and McEnroe was picking him to win it you know he I remember them showing footage of uh, of him beating Pete Sampras and saying yeah you know he's had a few blips but this guy's the real deal he's going to win it and he obviously you know wanted to be the guy that picked it picked it before everyone was picking it oh yeah um I've never, I've never and <laughs> And he just went, you know, a year, a year too soon. By the way, I went a little bit early with my Nottingham. It was 2000 that he played Nottingham. And that was part of a losing streak of 11 first round losses in 13 tournaments in 2000. And in that run, I mean... He lost to Jiri Novak. I've told that story before on the Roger Federer story. That was the one where he said, why do I lose all the close matches in the elevator on the way to the press conference? Did you say because you've got no nerve? No, I was a little <laughs> bit more supportive, uh, as I recall. And more. Uh, I think my words were, it'll come. And then he lost <laughs> 10 of the next 12 in the first round. Uh including to Sergio Bagheera the following week, 6-1, 6-1. Uh, he, he then lost to Andre Medvedev, Andre Pavel, Marcus Hanchk, obviously, 6-2, 6-1. Uh, 
Uh, he lost to Richard Fromberg in Nottingham on grass. Uh, Yevgeny Kofelnikov at Wimbledon, where Federer served and volleyed first and second serves relentlessly the whole time because he thought that's just what you do at Wimbledon. He he really didn't think you were supposed to do anything else. Uh, Alex Koretschu, he lost first round. Um, Leighton Hewitt in Canada. Francisco Clavet in Cincinnati. And then a in- lot of these. And who's who's last on the list? Uh, sorry, James Sekulov. These are, a lot of these names are people that are now dining out mm. still I on would. the fact that they beat Roger <laughs> Federer. I would say Marcus Hansch is in that category. Yeah. Clavet, um, that last name you mentioned that I've never heard of. James Sekulov from Australia, 191 in the world, won six four seven five. Yeah, in 2000 in August. I mean, you could argue that I've done 660 podcasts off the back of. Uh, once knowing Roger Federer <laughs> that 20 years ago um, but yeah uh, the, actually the notable result here I remember this as well is a few weeks after that suddenly he found form and got to the fi- the semi-finals of the Olympics um, people tend to forget that but then he lost both this, the semi-final match against Tommy Haas and then the bronze medal match from a set up and a second set tie break he lost to Arno Di Pascal Okay, I'm getting slightly freaked out by David's uh, Federer recall. Well, I've actually got um, the results now. The rest of it oh, is from okay, my memory, okay. but they, these I'm are from my computer. Um, well, on the subject of the Olympics... Perfect segue. Yes, because our next topics for Federer are the 2004 and 2008 Olympics, which, you know, he went into both as the number one player in the world and came away without without a singles medal, certainly. Um, so 2004, he lost 6'4", 5'7", 5'7", to an 18-year-old Thomas Burdick, who was ranked number 79 at the time in round two. Um, he was asked afterwards, do you know what, what went wrong in the match? And he said, many things. And, he, and, and the journalist said, can you pinpoint? And he said, all of them? Is that okay for you? I wasn't real happy with my serve, my forehand, my backhand and my movement. So that about sums it up. Those volleys, though. <laughs> yeah, they were crisp. Um, <laughs> and I think the interesting thing about this, I watched a bit of it back over the weekend. and Well, not the weekend, in, in the week. D- days of the week are meaningless, yeah, Matt. Yeah, they are. Um, it wasn't on the main stadium. And I think it must be the emptiest stadium that Federer has played in. Certainly, as, as a world number one. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, there's people there, but <laughs> <laughs> it's by no means full. And... Burdick actually said that that really helped him, not having to face Federer. You know, he was only 18, Burdick, not having to face Federer in front of a big crowd made it less intimidating. And he could just go out there and it was almost, you know, treat it. Treat it like any other match as as best as he possibly could. And yeah, I I remember watching that match of all Federer's Olympics, not getting the gold medal. I think that's the one that got away the most. Mm. Do you remember watching that, David? Uh, no, I, d- I, I didn't see it. Uh, I remember the result coming in at the time and f- feeling pretty shocked by it. But I, I didn't actually watch the match. Um, that was the first time I heard of Burdick, I remember. Mm. Oh, yeah, everybody was saying he's going to be the guy after after that win. And not that he wasn't a guy. He just wasn't the guy. <laughs> he had a ponytail back then th- yeah. po- poking yeah. out of his baseball cap. Which seems so off-brand now. And Federer had his ponytail slicked back. Again, off-brand. And then in (laughs) in 2008, 
Federer actually goes into the Olympics in pretty poor form, having lost to Seymour in Toronto and Karlovic in Cincinnati. But still, I don't think people saw a straight sets defeat to James Blake coming, someone who he'd, who he'd never lost to before, the, and the only time in his career, actually, that he lost to James Blake. And this, this match, which, again, I watched back, I know we often talk about the Millman match at the US Open as the time Federer was sweating. Well, this is another time. He is dripping by the end. He looks exhausted. He's like been run ragged by Blake, who's just powering the ball like he could sometimes. And Federer's, Federer's only playing defence, basically, in this match because Blake is just so on the front foot. Um, but yeah, this was a time where Federer just wasn't confident. He'd obviously had the big heartbreaking defeat in the Wimbledon final and he came into it with some losses on the hard courts. And yeah, another one that got away. But then he did go on to win that US Open. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, rubbish he, year, Federer. Rubbish. Yeah, that's that's Federer's bad year. Yes. Yeah, back to back grandstand finals and winning one. Um. <laughs> and you know, actually, it takes me back to when Sampras was around. That the the goalposts have moved with Federer and with Nadal and Djokovic. That they are always on. They we expect them to always be on. Sampras used to be quite happy to say, "If I win a slam in a year, I'm happy." You know, if I win more than that, great. But a good year is a good is a year if I win a slam, and and he would go into a mm. year thinking like that. So I mean that was two thousand eight in the Olympics, but didn't he have a dodgy period in two thousand and seven as well? He certainly did. One of one of the strangest periods I think in his career is Indian Wells and Miami two thousand and seven, where he goes in on a forty one match winning streak. I mean he just wasn't losing. That's going back 41. to forty one. Yeah, go, he won like seven tournaments in a row or something ridiculous going back to the US Open of the previous summer. And here he loses back-to-back matches to Guillermo Cañas. <laughs> I was there for the first one. Losing, losing once to Guillermo Cañas yeah. is I, bad I, but forgivable. I can't remember the 41 streak in terms of the number but I remember the feeling of being in the stadium I was there for BBC Radio my wife was there as well she'd never seen Federer play and and I'd got a ticket you know to see the great Roger Federer and she goes you'd said he's on a 41 match winning streak you're guaranteed to to see him all week lifting the title at the end of it I just said I was trying to my wife's not that into tennis really to watch it Uh, she likes likes it likes playing it but you know could take it or leave it and I said yeah but you've you've never seen Roger Federer play you (laughs) I said you wait you wait to see him play and uh, and he lost what did he lose seven five six two something like that Mm -hmm. and 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 he was he was just anemic that day he just didn't start I mean can was a bull. He played played good tennis, but Federer was. It was like he wasn't really there. All the next week. Well, yeah, because Federer gives after the Indian Wells loss. He says, "Well, I think if I would have played him in the third or fourth round, I'd have beaten him. It was just that it was in the first round." So then the next week he plays him in the fourth round and still loses. <laughs> um, this time this is a much closer match. This goes to a final set tie break. Um, but yeah, Kanyas becomes the only player besides Nadal to beat Federer in back-to-back tournaments since now Bandian had done it four years earlier. Um, and one of the interesting things about this match is the crowd, because Kanyas, South American, they kind of claim the Miami Open as, as kind of one of theirs often. We've seen that more recently with the support for players like Del Potro. But in this particular occasion... 
it feels like they are mainly rooting for Kanyas and against Federer. Um, it's, which, it's... which else elsewhere in the world, Kanyas was not a popular figure because he'd, he'd just come back from a drugs ban, hadn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He'd been banned for pretty much two years. What a weird period for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And then it wasn't a long term thing. Like he was kind of fine after that. It, you know, that was the summer where he beat Nadal on clay for the first time. He won Wimbledon. So it wasn't like his game mm. was falling apart. He just had two really bad, strange weeks. Um, Kanyas was asked in his press conference after the Miami win. So the big question of the tour has been, how do you beat Federer? You know, you've now done it two weeks in a row. So how do you do it? Kanyas just said, I don't know. <laughs> And he was like, you've just done it two weeks in a row. And he said, yeah, but I don't actually know how I did it. I just played my game, which, you know, wasn't very helpful, really, for everyone else. But Cheers, Guillermo. I, I quite liked that. Yeah, sometimes the answer is just I played really well and he or she didn't. Yeah, and I think it stood up well because it does feel like a one-off period mm. where something strange happened. It wasn't like he had unlocked the key to to beating Federer. Uh, but there was a theory that he hadn't been around. You know, he'd, been had, mm. he'd had that two-year drug span. He hadn't been around when Federer was just beating up the tour. You know, most people were going onto the court playing Federer. Kind of they'd lost before they'd even started, it felt that, like. That was the thing. And that's why the James Blake loss was such a big deal because the feeling was really that everybody just revered Federer so much. And this was before Nadal was, was beating up on him in quite the same way he would come to on on other surfaces i mean okay you know 80 did but the, the there was it was a bit all a bit too polite really at that time federer was having his way so often on the other surfaces but the other thing that does strike me with some of these press comments reactions is he wasn't quite as polished then as he as he is now i mean obviously he's 10 years older 12 years older now back then he was incredibly polished when it was all going well, but he would get pretty ratty if if he lost one. You know, it was so rare, and I don't, he didn't like it. I mean, you know, who would? But it's quite interesting to see that that has changed. He's he's learnt these days to just move on a lot quicker. I think mm. an example is he made fifty four unforced errors in that Miami match against Kanyas, according to the stat. But he'd said that he thought he played quite well. He's quite happy with his level. So the question was, well, how can you say that when you made 54 unforced errors? And he, and he replied saying, the stats guys don't have a clue on unforced errors. Oh, fake news. Which I don't think he would say now. In 03, mm. in 03 when he, he lost to Roddick in one of his very few losses to Roddick in Canada, um, I, I, I was really taken by how big Roddick's forehand was that day. And I felt like he overpowered Federer. He just zoned in on his backhand just went for every forehand and I said to Federer were you taken aback by how how much he went for that forehand and he he just looked me in the eye and he said what Roddick's got a big forehand you know who knew um he just he wasn't he was just pissed off he was he was annoyed that he lost the match and he, that, that, that he and maybe he thought it was a stupid question fair enough but um I, he wouldn't do that now in that in that way um and then he it was the, it was in 09 wasn't it that he that he smashed his racket and he was i remember him being irritated after that as well and just saying i just i just want this hardcore season over and you, you would sometimes just see this 
it, it, it would be laid bare. That's the beauty of the post-match press conference when there's maybe not much time for them to prepare for them. You just see the raw emotion, the raw reaction. Yeah, that racket smash was the next one on my list against against Djokovic in Miami 2009. It's really incredible to watch. He just dumps a forehand in the net, pauses and smashes his racket straight into the ground and gets booed. I remember it so vividly, so vividly. It's such a a jarring, alarming, standout moment in tennis. I know he's had a couple of couple of transgressions on the court he he hit the net didn't he smashed his racket into the net um in that match against El Potro in Basel um and you know the odd bit of umpire aggro a bit more latterly in the last year or so maybe an added bit of umpire aggro but still it's all extremely tame isn't it so to see Roger Federer really aggressively smash his racket into the ground, and then, as you say, the the reception to it was, yeah, it was just one of those iconic moments. I, I know this will sound this will sound bad in a way, like the way I'm going to put this across, but I didn't feel as shocked. I didn't feel shocked by that at all at the time because I was so used to it from the start of his career. I, I could never separate those two. I couldn't. I mean, I know you've just done the name-dropping sign to me, Catherine, but it's just true. I, I, I'm telling you the on, honest truth is watching that, I just thought, great, that's what he used to do all the time. And, I mean, he, he described it in that run of losses, um, that uh, run of first-round losses in 2000. He said, he said he went into his shell shortly after that because it was like there were helicopters around with the way I was throwing my racket about directors used to do video montages of him of his racket smashing it just you know it's not like Nadal who who has never thrown a racket Federer had to really train himself to change um and it's it's it is fascinating to see somebody who's that different to, to what he was at the start of his career well Mary Carrillo was surprised on commentary that that moment is further enhanced because she just goes he's 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 not a booable guy. <laughs> As the, uh, but then, to be fair, the, the boos did kind of turn to cheers and support and applause. Um, but again, he was asked in his press conference, what made you lose it? And he just says, I didn't lose it. <laughs> I just got frustrated. <laughs> Pretty sure you lost it. Um, yeah. I remember that so clearly as well. Just it was like the world momentarily off its axis. Mm. But the way you describe it, David, is he had to kind of train himself out of it. Kind of makes sense when you see it because it is like he snaps back mm. and just sort of he he kind of pauses before he does it and just thinks, right, as though he's trying to stop himself. He has he's learned how but not he lets to do himself it. Go. But I also think I actually believe him when he thinks it's when he thinks it's not a big deal. Oh yeah, because to him actually it's kind of natural. Um, he's learned how not to do it and that he's better off not doing it, but it's he's not Nadal. No. Well, anyway, it didn't help because we'll, we'll he lost the match. We'll come on to Nadal in due course. What happened in 2013, Matt? Well, what did happen in 2013? <laughs> well, he was all over the place, wasn't he? I mean, he lost... Do you know, you've got on the list here his, his loss to Stokowski at Wimbledon, which is still quite hard to fathom. I mean... Should say Stokowski that day was absolutely sensational. His his net play was incredible, but he's still playing Roger Federer, who'd won it how many times? 
five times, six times by then. Um, I remember commentating on that. I wasn't supposed to commentate on, on it. It was one of those where the Five Live team have only put one commentator on it because they think it's going to be three sets, really easy. Um, we won't do much of it because it'll be so straightforward, so we'll do other matches. And suddenly he's level up at one set all and somebody said, you better go and join Vassos Alexander in the commentary box because we're going to have to do the whole thing now. Uh, and he can't do it all on his own. So I went there and ended up doing the end of the match. And at the end of it, I said to Pat Cash, who was, who was commentating with me, is this the start of the end for Roger Federer as he, as he departed the court? I just wondered, you know, this could be it right here. And, and Pat said, well, look, I think the decline has been coming for a while. And that's how it felt back then. And if you look at the, the subsequent losses he had, while he was actually changing his racket, wasn't he? And, and trying to change the technology. But he was really, really struggling in that period. Yeah, he didn't allude to it in his press conference after the Stokowski loss. But he then, after Wimbledon, went to Hamburg and Gestad on clay. So he played clay court events for the first time post-Wimbledon since 2004. And as you said, he was experimenting with a Wilson racket with a bigger frame. And in Hamburg, he toiled against Brands and Meyer. I have this image of Federer playing Florian Meyer wearing a cricket jumper, <laughs> using a racket that isn't his and <laughs> barely on winning on clay after Wimbledon. And honestly, when I think of Federer's worst periods... More than any shock slam result he's had, I think of this period, these matches in Hamburg and Gestad. He he lost eventually to Federico Del Bonis in Hamburg and Daniel Brands in Gestad. And I think the reason I think of these matches is because it felt like desperation to me at the time. I think in hindsight, the change of racket has been a good thing for Federer, but it was such a concession that change was needed you know he's always and I think he's always been so stubborn that he wanted to use his smaller racket it sort of tied him to the past it was it suited his game it helped with his precision and you know it was a great racket for him but people have been talking about the need to go to a bigger one but I never thought he would do it it just felt felt like he was just searching and clearly in this in this instance not finding any answers Matt, you have skimmed over the best line of the research, which is that... I thought I'd uh, save that for you. After, or possibly even during, uh, uh, unclear, uh, he's, lost, he's lost to Daniel Brands in Gestad. Uh, he was given a, a new cow called Desiree. <laughs> yes. The last cow had died. Is that confirmed? Yeah, the one, the one that so. David was was there for the christening or birth or something of Juliet. I think marriage. Correct, Juliet. Juliet had died. I believe so. So they just replaced her like a blue Peter pet. <laughs> How long do they live? Typically, I don't know what the life expectancy of those I think things are. Longer than that sounds a bit fishy to me. I'd I'd have expected it to last longer than that. Oh dear, what a where's shame. Desiree now? Another one of those unanswered questions. <laughs> <laughs> From 2013, yeah. <laughs> uh, what a weird time. He lost in straight sets to Tommy Robredo. Huh? When, what another, another match not played on the main court. He, he, he doesn't do well when he's mm. not on the main court. Definitely a theme. Mm. 
I'd forgotten that that match was on Armstrong. Very strange. And he lost at Wimbledon, didn't he, to Kevin Anderson on court yeah. one? Yeah, yeah, 2018. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, he switches back to his smaller frame for the US Open and then, yeah, loses to Tommy Robredo, who he went in with a 10-0 head-to-head record against, a bit like the a bit like the Blake match that we mentioned. Um, but it's interesting that I still felt that every Federer loss was shocking. I know we I know we kind of talked about how we kind of thought it was coming, but that didn't take away from just how jarring it was for them to happen. It wasn't like you expected him to lose to Tommy Robredo, even though he wasn't in good form. And I think it was all the more shocking because you could see his powers just failing in front of him. It wasn't it wasn't because he was injured. I mean, there was talk of a kind of back problem, but I think he played that down. He just he just couldn't play as well as he used to. And that was so shocking to see for someone who's had such belief in their game and in their talent for it to fail them in a grand slam against a guy who he's beaten up in the past. I find it so extraordinary that that that, that happened. He just he just like he just couldn't play. He just wasn't Federer. But I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why we're doing this show is to show, just to remind everybody they're human. They they have this, like everybody does, they're, they're the best players of all time, but they've had bad times. They've had losses of confidence. They've Yeah, for, sorry, David. I mean, it makes them greater. For me, it makes them greater that, that Federal went through that in 2013 um and came i mean and continued a, a although things picked up continued a pretty barren spell in terms of slams and then injuries and that he's come back and won subsequent slams and had the longevity that he has you know we've 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 picked out all three of them have had these spells these massive lulls where we to to greater and lesser degrees have really questioned whether that might be it um, and and obviously it hasn't turned out to be it, but it's been valid each and every time to ask that question, I think, and it it makes them greater. You know how I feel about seeing the humanity in these people, making them appear relatable. Um, it's it's important to me. It makes it makes me understand them that bit more to mm. to see glimpses of of something I can just fractionally relate to and i i can't relate to uh the metronomic winning of titles <laughs> but you can relate to taking breath away there and can oh. you and can you relate from losing from match point up well i very rarely get to the match point position <laughs> I, <I'm laughs> so, so not hugely to, i'm just trying to think it, how i have lost several times from match point up to to solihull simon who incidentally he, he's not from solihull well, we he's, need yeah, to I, stop. Sh- I should say, I forgot to say, he'd written uh, to say that having listened to Monday's podcast, I'd just like to put the record straight on a few things. I was born in Sutton Coldfield, Uh-oh. went to school in Solihull, now live in Stratford upon Avon, and I'm looking forward to my next move to the Seychelles. I wouldn't travel more than four miles that I currently do to play you, but most importantly, can you please tell Catherine that a more appropriate description of our tennis is that it lacks any semblance of significant skill rather than being merely rubbish <laughs> so Sutton Coldfield Simon stroke Stratford please Simon. Simon know that I was making no judgments about your your abilities when I when I made that sweeping statement I've had wins against him from from that doesn't from, reflect well on Simon 
Not as, Mary. as I'm now going to call him. <laughs> Just a, Simon. I've got a negative head to head. But anyway. Sutton Coalfield's really near Solihull, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, we only right. have okay. place names beginning with S around here. Yeah, so, I think we stick with Solihull, Simon. So Tommy Robredo, by the way, I, that loss in 2013, which Federer avenged the following year, which I think is almost just another little signifier of how he rebooted and came back and he had Edberg in the team and all that sort of thing. But that one did make a lot of our colleagues in the press room write columns saying this is the end. That was the That was the match. Well, I can remember my personal feeling. Those were back in the days of probably my most ardent tennis fandom, if you like. And I, and I remember thinking that he was like a flickering light, if you like. You know, catch him now while you still can. So, you know, I made sure we got tickets to the O2 that year, which he just about managed to qualify for. And You did Federer panic buying. Exactly, yes. <laughs> You you panic bought some Federer. <laughs> so what's this uh, what's this match point up squandering stat then, Matt? It blew my mind a little bit actually. Federer has lost twenty two times from match point up. That that is more than David, isn't it? <laughs> it's I think it might be more than anyone. <laughs> I, d- I have I haven't played one and a half thousand matches against some of the best players in the world. That is a lot, though, isn't it? And it, and I think it helps to. As always, to put it into context, Djokovic has lost from match point up three times, and Nadal wow. has lost from match point up eight times. Wow. Federer, Federer is on 22, six times in slams, and 13 times he had multiple match points. Really? And blew it. Wow. I mean, he had, look, he has played a lot more matches than those two, but still not at that ratio. Indeed. That, that is still a ratio that reflects badly on him in terms of converting match points. And obviously wow. the the most famous ones have all been against Djokovic in slams, the two US mm. Opens, 2010-2011, and obviously last year's Wimbledon final, he lost two match points in all of those. And in 2011 and last year's Wimbledon final, they were on his serve, which makes it all the more remarkable. And his break point conversion is a lot lower than those two, so maybe he... He doesn't have any nerve after all. And John Wertheim was was right all along. (laughs) Yeah, Roger Federer, rubbish. (laughs) Yeah, to summarise, rubbish. And Q onslaught of tweets, picking out that quote. (laughs) Yeah, the the, the Express are going to blow that up, aren't they? David Law says Roger Federer is rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) You were shouting for the capitals that they will inevitably put on their tweet and headline Uh, should we do Nadal yeah let's do Nadal so we can get aggro from Nadal fans hey Um, I feel like Nadal fans are the least maybe okay maybe I don't want to get into this (laughs) here we go go on Matt go on they're the least likely to give you shit I think Nadal fans yeah I agree I, I think the fans tend to to be made in the image of of the of the person of which they are a fan. Nadal keeps his head down, doesn't get embroiled in anything, does he? Whenever he's asked about something controversial, he goes, "No, I'm not. I'm not an expert. Yeah. You'll have to. You'll have to speak to somebody that knows about these things." But um, occasionally, I- occasionally, he will just decide to very politely drop a little bit of home truth in somewhere as he sees it 
Yeah. With a raised eyebrow. Like in Wimbledon press conferences. Yeah. Yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Right then. Nadal. Uh, these don't fit quite so sort of beautifully chronologically as Matt's, I'm afraid, so it might feel a bit scattergun. Yeah, but we, we've away started we go. with the best research first, then we go to Catherine, and oh, then we end up at me. But, Realistically, Catherine... You, if you read mine... Yeah, yours are good. Yours are good. Not as good as his. And mine are... really rude. Mine, That's the best <laughs> I've got. Mine are languishing some way down the fucking order. Carry on. Oh, I don't feel very motivated to carry on now. <laughs> <laughs> the beautiful Catherine, the, the magnificent. Well, now you're just patronising me. They are actually really good. Anyone listening? They are. I, that was uncalled for, David. All right. Okay, we'll cut that out. <laughs> Carry on. You don't deserve to have that cut out. Right then. Uh, where to start with this substandard research? Nadal's. <laughs> um, well, given that we've, I've already sort of given the game away that we've selected kind of a a lull period for for each of the big three. Um, I'll kick off with what was glaringly Nadal's 
biggest lull period of his career, which was well, twenty fifteen to sixteen at its most acute in in twenty fifteen. It was by far his worst season since he won his first slam in two thousand and five. Um, it was the year when kind of after, particularly towards the end of the year, obviously, after lots of uh, press, during lots of press conferences following defeats, he would slightly chippily respond to a lot of questions with his uh, reciting his ranking, saying, well, I am seven in the world. That's not bad. <laughs> uh, the race. All, yeah, exactly. I'm I'm eight in the race. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, after he lost to Fabio Fanini in the US Open that year, um, that loss from two sets to love up under the lights on Arthur Ashe, uh, <laughs> he was asked about his bad season. He says, I'm number eight in the world. No, I'm not 100. <laughs> um, and uh, he said, I don't know. It seems like I'm number 200 in every press conference. I'm not so bad. <laughs> I come back inflation. to the <laughs> Exactly. I come back to the locker room hearing people say how bad I am every day. Um, and I can totally understand why he felt that way. But it's I also understand why he was being asked about it, because it was exactly as we've discussed with Federer. It was so jarring to see him struggling kind of relentlessly as he was and and just floundering and seemingly having having no solution to it you know it just it, it dragging on all year i remember his loss at the french open that year in in the quarterfinals to to novak djokovic i remember when that draw came out and djokovic was very much the heavy favorite for for the french open that year in spite of the fact that nadal was in the draw nadal hadn't won uh, any clay court tournament in the lead up that year it was it was clear that he was struggling but still everybody wanted to see where they would be drawn to face one another and as soon as it came out as the quarter final that that was the match up that everybody was was talking about when the draw came out and it just wasn't really a contest it was just a really routine victory for Novak Djokovic over the king of clay the king of Roland Garros and there was nothing surprising about it. Um, the independent write-up described Nadal as hanging on grimly throughout. That was my first ever trip to Roland Garros that year. And I was on Philippe Chetrier for that match. And I remember so distinctly the following day wanting to buy a newspaper because it felt like such a big event. And whenever there's a big event, I try and buy a newspaper just for the front page and to keep a bit of a record. And I remember thinking, well, we've just seen kind of the end of Nadal at Roland Garros. That's such a big thing because, and the reason I felt like that was because Djokovic was so superior in that match. And I was just flicking through the newspaper today and there's a bit from Mats Valander who's just, who's in it saying that Nadal was hesitant and he no longer has the same strike on the ball. He's dropping the ball short and Djokovic is in his comfort zone playing against him. And, you know, if their paths continue like this, how can Nadal beat Djokovic again kind of thing? Because each set just got more and more dominant for Djokovic in that match. 7-5, 6-3, 6-1. And normally with Nadal, you expect the longer the match goes on, the stronger he gets, the better he gets. But it was the complete opposite. It was so, so stark, that match. Yeah, it was kind of 
although the the bad year can continued it was the zenith of of that terrible lull for nadal and he went he still went to queens didn't he after well i suppose he 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 had more time than he usually has post french open um to to give himself a break before queens who did he lose to at queens that year david the mem- memory man well, I know this because I watched the highlights today and you were on it, Catherine. You were doing the voiceover. Was yeah, I? Cause we, yeah, because we were doing, we were doing <laughs> podcasts from Queen's for the first time that year. And uh, he, he was really struggling. And, and I, we interviewed his, his uncle. We interviewed Tony. Uh, and he was very candid and said he has no confidence he has no self-belief and he was dropping that forehand short and when you were talking about that loss to to uh to Djokovic and there was also the the loss to Luca Pui wasn't there and in that period I find myself really torn do I want to see this guy dig in and try to come again because obviously I do I want to see that but uh, but am I prepared as a fan or as a as an observer to watch this guy that we've all revered and we all love watching look like a shadow of themselves when is the point when do the when do you want them to just accept it because there are players I've seen certain players I remember Michael Chang being a shadow of himself and going around the circuit still and playing tournaments and you're just thinking just just stop and and it always tugs and, and with these three, actually with these three, I think I've felt it with all of them at certainly once or more occasions. And that's the great thing, that they've managed to look that in the eye and, and come back and dominate again. It's just incredible. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously sort of the, that 2015 season was plumb in the middle of of one of the other um, wider uh, categories that we have for Nadal, which was his Wimbledon record between 2012 and 2017, where he, he just dropped off the edge of a cliff at Wimbledon. You know, he had reached uh, five finals in six years between 2006, 2011. He didn't play 2009. So he was just reaching the final every year. It was... You know, it was he played those three consecutive finals against Federer, didn't he? Where he got in, incrementally better each one, each one culminating, of course, in him winning it in in that epic final in in two thousand and eight. And it was it was watching Nadal crack grass. It was watching him figure it, figure it out and make his game work on it. And he had done it. He had cracked it. And then, kind of out of nowhere. He just starts having a horrible time at Wimbledon. It starts with the five-set loss to Lucas Russell in 2012, which was just a seismic loss at the time. It was, yeah, it was, it was shocking. It was, it, it was similar to what you described with with Stokowski. Um and Federer. It was expected to be a completely routine victory for Nadal. Russell ranked a hundred in the world, um, and in particular, Nadal had won the fourth set and. He was on a roll and then they stopped play, didn't they, to pull over the roof. And Nadal being the gracious, not wanting to get involved in aggro guy that he is, as we've just described a bit, he wasn't drawn on that in the press conference afterwards. But he definitely did indicate that that was not a good thing for him, that that that, that roof got, 
got uh, pulled over and the fifth set was played um, as an indoor match. Um, Henman described Russell's performance, he described the match as a freak performance from Lucas Russell. And, he, he and did, it was, he, he wasn't played, it? He, well, he played sort of casino tennis, didn't he? He just, just decided, roll the dice on everything. He was, he was out of his mind. He was just yeah. hitting out he on was every treeing. shot. He was treeing, whatever that means. He was doing it. Um, when, I, think, I think when he went to serve it out against Nadal, he hits, I want to say he hits like four aces or something. Like, I'm, I'm not sure Nadal touched the ball in the, in the final game of the match. It was just nerveless. It was, it was actually quite terrifying. Yeah, and it was as jarring as it was and as much as a... a yeah, as jarring as it was... It was still the sort of match that a great can lose. If someone just comes out and absolutely goes for it and it just happens to be the day when it goes in, we we do see greats lose matches to, to players like that that roll the dice and it all just comes up Russell, which it did that day. I think I, I, think I know where you're going with this. I don't think I can say the same, bless him, for Steve Darcy's in in 2013 because um, that was the uh, sorry in um, yeah in 2013 which was the the next loss at Wimbledon and if anything it was more shocking because it was straight sets and he had he was still one of the pre-tournament favourites Darcy's was 135 in the world um, the BBC described it as one of the biggest upsets in Wimbledon history. Um, and we rather suspect that that Nadal's creaky knees were were a factor now, but he certainly wasn't conceding that at the time. He was ever sportsmanlike that, that's the about one, it. That's the one that stands out to me the most because I can see the others, the threat in all of the others that that he lost at Wimbledon in that period. Russell, Nick Kyrgios, who we know obviously the firepower he has, Dustin Brown, what a a mercurial talent he is, um, and Jill Muller being a big left-handed server who just kind of won won the serving war in the end. But Darcy doesn't have that kind of weaponry that you would think would do it to him. No, it was it was watching David beat Goliath, wasn't it? It was it was a really really bizarre loss. Then 2014, of course, is the year when. Nadal loses to Kyrgios, then number world number 144. He's a wild card at the time. It's interesting looking back on on write-ups of, of that match in the papers because obviously at the time, most of the people writing about Nick Kyrgios, this was the very first they were seeing him, you know, seeing non-jaded, fresh eyes on Nick Kyrgios and remembering how he was perceived then at kind of first take is really interesting. It was described by um, Jacob Steinberg in The Guardian as an Australian teenager with no fear and a golden arm uh, who blew the world number one Rafael Nadal off centre court in four extraordinary sets. Um, and it, it was, as much as that was a shock and, and the tournament was was gutted to lose lose Nadal, there was so much excitement about Kyrgios that actually Nadal losing was the secondary story there. So as you say, that one is perhaps not as jarring as the others. But then 2015, the 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 lull year he loses to 
to Dustin Brown, who incidentally has a 2-0 and record against Rafael Nadal. He's beaten him twice, both times on grass. Um, but, yeah, I mean, look, Dustin Brown play, played brilliantly. We know how much he loves grass. We know how tricky he can be, etc., etc. But um, some words from, from Tim Henman summing up that result. He said, I think... Roger Federer and or Andy Murray would have beaten Brown today. They both return better and more confident at the moment. When you've won 14 Grand Slams and 60-odd tour titles, it amazes me how fragile Nadal's confidence is. He's talked about it, how he really struggles with nerves in matches, and that amazes me. He needs to find a solution to that because he's still young. Well, that last part's aged well, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> sure. Yeah, to think he's won five slams since this slump period. But he, he was, I think, part of the reason that made Nadal's slump. I found Federer's shocking. I found Djokovic's weird. And I found, and I found Nadal's almost a bit depressing. And I think part of that was because he was so candid about the struggles he was having. He was he was really open. He was saying he was struggling. He he okay. Sometimes he he would comment saying, "I'm not doing that badly. I'm seven in the race or whatever." But <laughs> he was actually open about what he was going through. He let us in a bit more than he probably ever had in his whole career, so that we were able to get a bit more of a sense about what he was feeling. And you could that married up with what you were seeing on the court, which was a guy devoid of confidence. Which is unusual for the greats, isn't it? If you think about, you know, Andy Murray, when he had his cathartic moment of confessing what he was going through with the hip at the Australian Open last year, prior, obviously, to to deciding to have the, the major surgery, he said, he said, yeah, I've been I've been lying about it because... Uh, you don't you don't I don't want them to see me limping I don't want them to know that I'm in pain I'm gonna have to face that guy the the next day I don't want everyone to know how bad it is so I've been I've been holding it in and keeping a lid on it and I can see an argument for doing it both ways because obviously that makes total logical sense but also the the pressure of holding on to something like that and con- concealing and feeling like you're having to deflect all the time must be exhausting um so yeah it's and, and you know the, the in 2016 he has that loss to to Jill Miller you know Jill Miller was the 16th seed um and playing so the tennis of his life. And, and actually, I think Nadal by then was at least playing well again. The other matches, he, mm. he wasn't. He lost out in a serving contest at the end. But. And actually, as much as I've grouped that in with his his poor Wimbledon losses during that period, you could view it slightly differently, see it as the sort of start of the upturn in his Wimbledon form because, yeah. you know, he's had back-to-back semi-finals since then and, and very very nearly finals particularly thinking about that the five set uh, match against Djokovic a couple of years ago that could very very easily have gone differently so he's suddenly considered a force again at Wimbledon and I think part of the problem over that period at Wimbledon was that he became more and more vulnerable every year like he lost his aura at Wimbledon people you were kind of looking in the draw for people with that disruptive game like a Russell you were thinking oh who could threaten Nadal the next year like a Kyrgios like a Brown he, and he kept running into them and you were you were waiting for that match and waiting to see what they would bring on the court against Nadal and I think aura is such a big part of why the big three have been able 
to dominate. It's incredible that they've managed to all build it back up again after their slumps, but it does explain, or it certainly contributes to their dominance in the first place. Mm. I mean, I've 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 got the 2018 uh, season here uh, down as the next sort of bad period for Nadal. Not anything like the 2015 or even 2016 se- season, but it was a very weird time for for Nadal on hard courts. And just like we've been saying, there have been times during these lulls for all three when we've speculated whether they're a faded or fading force. In 2018, we definitely speculated whether Nadal was a spent force on hard courts, whether he even really had it in his canister, in his knees to compete at all on hard courts. There was that extraordinary record where he he retired or withdrew from 11 um, outdoor or indoor hard court tournaments that year. He retired from the Australian Open um, quarterfinals, the US Open semifinals, he withdrew from Brisbane, Acapulco, Indian Wells, Miami, Cincinnati, Beijing, Shanghai, Paris, ATP finals. He only played nine events that year and he won five of them and ended the year at world number one. I mean, what what a weird set of statistics. And then he ended the year on, on crutches, having ankle surgery. It was a it was it was a very strange time, but it yeah, the 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 take that he might be done on hard courts has has definitely not aged well, and I find that extraordinary. I it, I I find it mind blowing that he won the U.S. Open last year. Still, it's just amazing. His his perseverance with his injuries is one of the probably really underrated elements to his career because the other two haven't suffered injuries like him at all. They've okay. Federer's had a surgery, and he's now had another small one. Djokovic had a had one really serious one, which cost him six months of his career. But Nadal's had something like this most years. He's had a pretty significant problem to overcome, and he just he just swallows it, doesn't he, and just comes back for more. I I, I do find it, and considering as you say, the kind of tennis he plays on these surfaces, that he's still able to rebuild his body and come back for more and dominate again it's incredible yeah it really is also incredible and this is the final thing on our nadal list is that he's never won an atp finals title um how whether that will end up being a factor at all in the debate about the greatest of all time if as david predicts they do all end up on 20 who knows he's obviously got the uh the olympic singles gold which the other do don't have but the other two don't have but yeah he's he's got a a really relatively poor record at that tournament he's only reached the final twice in 2010 lost to federer 2013 lost to djokovic um he's withdrawn ahead of the event six times including the very first time he qualified for it in 2005 um, 2017, he pulled out after playing just that that one match against uh, David Goffin. Um, there were a couple that you could maybe pick up on as the one that that got away. Maybe 2008. It was obviously one of his best ever years. Won Roland Garros, Wimbledon, Olympic golds, and he was forced to pull out of the finals that year. Is is the last year in Shanghai, and he was forced to pull out ahead of it. Who knows? But um, yeah, that. That whole point obviously comes with the major asterisk of 
that tournament never having been played on clay, which is obviously a huge disadvantage. And it's always it's always wound him up, hasn't it? And mm. um, I, I've off, he's often come in to that tournament for one reason or another, looking pretty grumpy with life, um, and and really not really up for it, not really that keen on it. Um, the surface, the 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 amount of tennis he's already played and won, and he looks like he's just had enough. Um, how, how many? He must have played it more than ten, twelve times. I, I don't know how many times he's played it in total. Well, he's qualified every year since '05, right. and he's pulled out six times. Wow. So, um, some Matt is counting on his fingers. Well, would, you, would, you, would you even consider <laughs> it? Nine? When you know, when when they do ultimately, inevitably, end up on exactly the same number of slams as each other, <laughs> would you even count it as a, as a as a tiebreaker of of any kind? It depends how far down the list you have to go. I'd count it ahead of, you know, Basel titles. <laughs> it's a blow for Federer. <laughs> so, sorry, poor old Basel. No. <laughs> and poor old you know, I mean, you know, if they're tied on, it's like, it's like round robin stage of the ATP finals, isn't it? It's it's head to head, then percentage of sets won, then percentage of games <laughs> won. How how far down the the list you have to go yeah Rafa, but now, i mean it's the, it's on the list it's just obviously below it's definitely below olympic you're not the gold and olympic you medals. didn't get the highest game percentage rafa well yeah exactly but, but it's it's a it's a thing it's not nothing and i do think it's perfectly reasonable that it has never been on clay like i really don't think that the atp finals at the end of the year should suddenly be going on clay i mean we've all, you, you already get withdrawals from that event if you were to suddenly change the surface i'm not sure players would want that probably nadal would be the only one who would want to be playing on clay <laughs> because it, if he'd, you, he'd be pumped and everyone else would be grumpy you, yeah you could argue then well why has Roland garros never been played on hard court yeah i mean once you get into that debate i just think you know the end of the season, personally, I think it should move around more. I think London's done a great job of hosting it, but I think that is an event that could move, and I, I think that would be cool. But It's, it's probably going to move to everyone's back gardens this year. <laughs> so. it, does, it does bring into focus just how extraordinary what Nadal did at the Davis Cup mm. last year, because so often he's limping over the finish line in a season or not even able to make the finish line. But to play the tennis he did, singles and doubles, consecutive days against some of the best players in the world was still I think one of you know I know this is meant to be their worst of moments but I still think mm. that's one of his best moments mm. well there we go we've ended on a on a Nadal best of <laughs> they're just irresistibly good aren't yeah. they yeah we just can't help it it's great really enjoyed it <laughs> really enjoyed it yeah, it's, um... hang on we've got one more to go How have we what we got We've got your We've lousy got research, David. I mean, <laughs> Djokovic has given us enough material in the last 24 hours to create a worst of list. Uh, he, so we might not need all your research. He certainly entertained us in a... In a, in a I don't, I, look, Djokovic, whatever he's doing with his life, whatever views he has, whatever, whatever else he does, he, he seems to manage to make it work for himself on court to an extraordinary degree. I don't know what he's talking about half the time uh, on these Instagram lives with this chap um, that he's been speaking so, to. I can fill you in if you'd like to know. Uh, go on then. 
He's been saying that you can purify food and water through the the power of your mind and staying present. Right. And also that even if you're eating a healthy meal, it can become unhealthy if you have an argument at the dinner table. Gosh. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, so what's the point in not just eating donuts? Which I'm doing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, no amount of sort of wishing will make a donut healthy. <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, enough argument will make a salad unhealthy. So, yeah. I mean, the thing is, on the like, the immediate reaction is to laugh, but actually, it's pretty disturbing and. Mm. Dangerous, I think, mm. with his platform. Is is, mm. the, is he try, is the point supposed to be that if you're if you're not having an argument at the dinner table, therefore you're not stressed and there's no anxiety around? Is that is that the point that that's been made? Yeah, he, he seems to be talking about sort of mystically changing the properties of of food and water. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish he would get off the, the platform. That's just me, um, and, and just stick to to doing what he does. But it's up to him, isn't it? Um, we have like always known that he's a very different person, certainly mm. to Federer and Nadal. It's just that normally they're talking about tennis, so it, you don't get to realise quite how different he is. As soon as like the subject matter has changed, it's it's really been quite jarring to see him talk like this so openly on this on this Instagram live platform mm. like he's he's had an opportunity to give his views on these topics which normally he just doesn't get that opportunity mm. and and that's fine having you know bizarre views about things in in private doing nobody any harm fine good luck to you but it it's irresponsible to be telling people that you can purify water through the the power of m mindfulness well, on, a, on a public platform i think the uh and probably the more concerning views stated or somewhat clarified but it's not that he backed down from them were the ones about his concerns over over taking a vaccination in order to return to the tour which uh yeah i mean the world at the moment is at utter standstill because of the lack of a vaccine, as far as we can see, um, so yeah, that that is a concern. And actually, I th I I almost feel like going backwards because of how much has been going on recently on that particular platform of Instagram Live. Even as far as his one with Stan Wawrinka the other day, who was putting him on the spot about parts of his career, I felt in a way because. I think what – and I have some sympathy with Djokovic about this. He he came on the scene as the third wheel. He did an incredible job to make himself the third wheel in the, in the Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal story because nobody was expecting that when he came along. Everybody thought Djokovic was, was a very, very good player, great talent, and it was kind of Nadal and Federer and then Djokovic and Murray. And, but there was a clear divide, clear distinction between those two groups of, of players. There was one and two, and there was three and four. And the chances were, it seemed, that that would never... They, they, until 2011, I never thought that Djokovic would break into that group. Um, and he did. But in so doing, he he's ended up becoming compared to them at every stage. Um, and in the words of Vavrinka putting it to him really quite bluntly to his face on an Instagram live 
uh, asking him how he felt about all that. And he, he compared it to, to a movie in which you can't have three good guys. You've got to have a bad guy. And, and I mean, that's probably true in, in, in many ways. How can you have all of them up in lights to the same degree on a, on a, for, for the neutrals? I mean, Djokovic has got a huge fan base of his own, but relatively speaking, when he gets to these big matches against those other two, he's had to, he's had to deal with, with them as a, and their popularity. And, and that did cause him a problem for a while because he admitted he found it really hard to accept. He didn't understand why, why they were going so for, for them. And, you know, we've seen in the 2014 and 2015 finals against Federer effectively against him. I think he's, he's learned, well, he's learned to deal with it and he's learned to win even though, which I think is one of his greatest achievements. But if you take it, Right back to the beginning of his career, when he came along, he he was really quite a cheeky young lad who would come along and impersonate the players. He'd got impersonations of Federer, their mannerisms on court, the way they Federer would applaud the crowd. He imitated Sharapova, McEnroe. It was pretty funny. They were pretty good impersonations and they got kind of rave reviews early on from on-court interviewers who would get them to try to get him to try and do them in front of the crowds and the crowds would lap it up but he was seen as as if he was messing around and it didn't get taken that well by some of his peers and I think also I think he tired of being looked at as this no pun intended joker he, he just didn't he didn't want that and and I, I think it's a shame I think it's a shame that he couldn't have just plowed his own way really um and still managed to win but look you make your own decisions and and look look at the results he's had um but i mean then the one thing i think that really blighted his his reputation within the locker room early on and and just more generally in the game with the sheer number of retirements that he had um we we've counted 13 retirements in the space of his career whereas i don't think federer's had any has he i don't and nadal has had had a number because of his his injuries but the feeling was that when the going got tough for djokovic in some matches if he if he didn't think he was going to win anymore he would pull the plug um sometimes i think he looked really distressed in heat uh, he had a lot of problems with heat early on in his career if it was hot weather and i think he still has it today he's learned how to deal with it but he would he would walk out on matches if they weren't going his way, and I think that that is something that was was a really important thing for him to overcome, which he did in in a, f- a five year period. I think between twenty eleven and twenty sixteen, when he didn't have any retirements. But I mean, that was the the early impression of him, wasn't it? That if you if you can stick with him, I know Roddick used to th- think that if you could stick with him, he he'd chuck it in. Yeah, and Ruddick pretty much said as much, right? They had a a an inc- a moment of aggro. They did have a, a big moment of aggro, and it was in two thousand and eight at the U.S. Open, and Roddick had got asked in his press conference about quotes from Djokovic uh, about having a, an ankle injury, and, jo- and Roddick rolled his eyes and said, "Is it right ankle today, or is it the left ankle today? Is it uh, is it SARS?" Is it anthrax? Is it a bird flu? 
is it the common cold? Um, and, you know, he was getting plenty of laughs in the interview room, but word of this got back to Djokovic. Um, and Djokovic then went and beat Roddick pretty handily in four sets on the US Open's Arthur Ashe Stadium. And in the interview afterwards, he was uh, he pretty quickly said, look, to win on this court in his city is great. He was saying I had 16 injuries. I guess obviously not, right? I know this crowd is against me already, and they were booing by this time. They think I'm faking. It's not nice of him to say that. Um, and apparently afterwards, when Djokovic returned to the locker room, Roddick grabbed him by the throat and threw him against the locker room door. Um, and immediately Djokovic's team came around and uh, Roddick was persuaded to get off him quite quickly, is uh, is the story that Andy Roddick tells. Um, David, this happened, this happened 12 years ago. And you've never told this tale of, of ultimate aggro R- until Roddick now. Has said that publicly. He said that publicly in interviews. And um, yeah, they, wow. they had a they had a big. I mean, I think they they got over it pretty quickly, and they they get on well now. And I know that Roddick has immense respect for what Djokovic has become because he's become he because he became a warrior himself. I think that Roddick didn't didn't like the way he carried himself back then. And I think he wanted to show him a thing or two. Um, but actually, if you then look at what Djokovic became in 2011, that run of form that he had, the defiance that we've talked about so often, along with all the the ability he's got, um, he turned himself into some into something different. And if you and I think that that's characterised in one of the other elements I got here, which is is his early head to head against Nadal and Federer. He was four and fourteen against Nadal. He was six and thirteen against Federer. Now he's twenty nine, twenty six up against Nadal. Twenty seven, twenty three up against Federer. He's turned those rivalries around against two the two players that we all thought were going to be unquestionably the greatest of all time, and he holds the head to head record. I find that astonishing as a, in terms of willpower as, as well as his physical skill and his tennis ability to just keep on coming in spite of it all and that's what I admire so much about him is that doesn't matter whether the crowd's on his side doesn't matter whether the, the pop, popular wishes are on his side he keeps coming and he is the one who's coming out on top whether we whether he's at the end, we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I know that Roddick gets frustrated now on his behalf, which I find quite interesting. That people, certainly in America, Roddick says talk too much about Rafa and Roger and need to talk more about him. And and that head to head, assuming it ends up in Djokovic's favour, which I rather suspect it will um, against both those two. Um, for many people, that would be quite high up the list of determining goat factors if it comes to that certainly higher than than ATP finals For, I, I, um, I feel so I feel it's important I mean I think you you have to give Federer some leeway just because he's so much older he started so much so much earlier and you could say that his peak might have been 05, 06, 07 when Djokovic was barely active um, but, but then 
people will argue that that helped him accumulate slams before mm. before Djokovic and Nadal became such a force. I mean, it's it's such a yeah. I mean, all goat argument. debates lead to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I keep bringing it up. But um, the 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 significance of those head to heads is in is 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 interesting, and people view it very very mm. differently, don't they? But absolutely, the way he he's turned them around, completely sort of bent them to his will, is is incredible. And he, like the other two, has had his comeback story, his remarkable comeback story, because this is a guy who completed the slam of all four Grand Slams held at the same time in 2016 at the French Open. And, I mean, he he had a nasty elbow injury that he had to have six months out of the sport at the end of um, 2017 for that. But even after that 2016 French Open, he lost to Sam Querrey and he looked a shadow of himself. He looked burnt out, frankly. And... He admitted, and uh, it was an interview with Simon Briggs, wasn't it, in the Telegraph, that he said, I, I just, it's like I wasn't there. I'd, I'd look around and it, I just didn't feel like, like a tennis player. I didn't feel like I knew what to do. And for someone like him to look lost and burnt out and just not have any motivation is, is really, really jarring. And, and it coincided with defeats to Dennis Isterman at the Australian Open, uh, Burdick, he had to retire against him with this, the the elbow problem. Remember the one to Chung in Australia, Chekanato in Roland Garros. There was Taro, Daniel, Benoit, Pair. Just matches that the real Novak Djokovic playing at his best. He doesn't lose these matches. That that uh, Roland Garros match against Dominic Team when he yes. tanked tanked the fourth set. As much as the actual losses he took, it was the it was the way he was on court, which was sort of you knew something was wrong. It was the lifelessness. There was no, there was no fight. There was no focus on the court. He was, yeah, he, it, was, it was like he said in his own words, like he wasn't there. There was no, there was no presence on the court in that period, which you know is is such a big part of what makes him so great. That ability to fight and dig in. It just, he just didn't have it for so long. It was, it was really more than anything. I said earlier that it was weird. Yeah, it was, it was the most curious period. I kept. I kept expecting him to get it back, and I think it kind of it kind of did happen like that in the end because, you know, arguably his lowest ebb was the Chechenato loss at, at the French Open when he kind of gave a very sort of flippant. I'm I'm not even going to play on the grass, which I think probably too many people <laughs> took at face value. But he was in a really bad way after that loss, and then he quite quickly did turn it back on again, getting to the final at Queens and winning Wimbledon. It. And then he was sort of off again, and he was he was back to being himself. So it did suddenly turn, but I expected it to turn much sooner than it did. It it was a prolonged period of mm. lifelessness and poor results when I just didn't expect it. And, yeah. and it was a it was a period that coincided, well, not coincidentally, with his revolving door of coaches. Well, Which was, provided us with so much to talk about, so I mean, much entertainment. I think that, it that, was, was, that was the first time we started to to really see Djokovic's alternative approach to life um, and to, to the backroom staff. I mean, he'd already had Marion Vida since the start of his career, pretty much, and who's back with him now and has just been the constant. 
apart from this period where he was he was chucked out in what Djokovic called a need for shock therapy and he got rid of his entire coaching and, and training team. Vider had been joined by Boris Becker, which had an incredibly successful period as a as a tandem. That that was when Djokovic completed the the the, the slam. But then he'd also got this chap Pepe Imaz on his team, who, I mean, I just never really understood what he did um, personally. I, I didn't know what his role was. Um, he 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 just he was a peace and love coach. Yeah, I mean, it just all. I look, may, maybe I just don't get it. Maybe I just don't get it. I let's just call it say that. But but and I still don't get it. Um, then he had. Radek Stepanek, Mario Ancic just for Wimbledon, uh, Andre Agassi for quite a, uh, well, for a period of tournaments, but none of it, none of it fit, none of it produced any results at all. And he went back to Marion uh, Vida and, and that pretty much resulted in immediate success again because he, he got to the final of Queens, went and won Wimbledon and it was just, you'd, you'd suddenly got the old Djokovic back. Um, so isn't it interesting when you think of it in those terms that all three of them in their own way have had this this trajectory of incredible success upon incredible success and then seemingly it's over and they find a way to, to resurrect themselves. And, and do you know what our notes on, on the three of them have in common, I've noticed? What's that? Uh, losses to Thomas Burdick. <laughs> There's a podcast to be done on Thomas Burdick, isn't there? <laughs> um, apparently, losses to Thomas Burdick are the the marker of, of failure for great tennis players. You've got um, Nadal's loss to, to Burdick at the uh, 2015 Australian Open, which started off that bad year. That was when uh, Nadal had won 17 in a row against Burdick and Burdick put an end to that run nobody beats Thomas Burdick 18 times in a row apparently you've got uh, Federer losing to Burdick at the Athens Olympics and uh, Djokovic's loss to Burdick in 2017 where was that one Wimbledon Wimbledon yeah. um, when he had to yeah. retire yeah um, so there you go you know you're having a slump when you're losing to Thomas Burdick <laughs> who I mean be quite interesting if you could stick Burdick in another, in the era when, say, Kafelnikov and Moya were world number one, I wonder whether he might have was it was his was his level elevated by these guys, or would he have had his way if it had been in a, a different era on his own? More impossible intergenerational debate <laughs> topics. That's what we need an hour and thirty five minutes into a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So there we are. Can I pick up one thing on Djokovic, sure. which is coach related which is but it's going back to 2009 when he had Todd Martin oh yeah because if you <laughs> if you've not seen the video of <laughs> Todd Martin making Djokovic kneel down <laughs> to practice his serve publicly at Indian Wells Stop listening to this podcast and go and watch it immediately on YouTube because it is extraordinary to think that happened. I think it's one of the most 
humiliating videos I've ever seen. Djokovic is on his knees practicing his serve. And I'm sure Todd Martin had Djokovic's best interests when he was doing this, trying to improve his serve. It was a it was a period where Djokovic's serve was a problem. But he's on his knees trying to serve and I, I imagine it's trying to get some kind of core stability, core strength in. Well, it, it wasn't working but if that was working, the aim. Because he sort of collapses every time he goes to hit these serves. And you can just see the people in the background sort of kind of laughing, kind of wide-eyed and aghast at what they're watching. Like, it's it's the world number three on his knees serving to try and make it better. It, it, it's, it's extraordinary to think that it happened. Yeah, he's the only one of them that's had sort of strange, ill-fated coaching coaching hookups. Usually a feature of... of of top players is coaching consistency and of course he has that too because Marion Vida has been the common denominator in all of his victories and that mm. is period with Boris Becker of course that was settled and very successful but he had that period of which Todd Martin was a feature early in his career he, he kept on bringing in sub coaches to sort of help with specific areas of his game he had Mark Woodford on board mm. uh, tasked with helping him with his volleys and Todd Martin to help him with his serve and I, I hey, actually, look! They've all they've all led him to w- to where he is now, which is in element, a very good place. I, but I, I actually quite like that he tried that all mm. of that, that because it's just self improvement, isn't it? It's trying to tap into as many different people as you. I mean, look at that! It's a heck of a role of of honor, isn't it? Of Mark Woodford, Todd Martin, Andre Agassi, Boris Becker, Mario Ancic, Radek Stepanek. There's a lot of former players who've who, Pepe Imaz. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at least he was try, trying stuff. Um, and mm, look, yeah, I think there's something to be said for it. You know, it's not working, so I'll change something. And Todd, if you're listening, let us know what the thinking was. I mean, look, I'm, 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 there would have been a good reason for it. Todd Martin is is a smart bloke, and, and uh, but I'd love to know what it was. I'm sure weird looking drills happen all the time. It was the it was the public nature of it. Yeah, it was humiliating. And that happened, Indian Wells, 2010. Todd Martin was gone by Monte Carlo 2010. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly it was a relationship The writing ender. was on the wall. Yes. <sighs> oh. But, you know, what have they won? How many is it now? Four, 50, 56 slams between them? Blamanek. That's a lot. I should, just, I should just point out that we... We we did debate having going far beyond the big three for this and having all the greats and making it in particular gender balanced. Um, but it was defining the greats and making creating parameters within which we could do research was quite difficult. And the big three was the sort of neatest, the neatest way of of doing it. Plus, uh, plus, we've just done an hour and forty minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, there are plenty others we could have included. Of course, everyone's had their moments. They have, because it's human nature, um, <laughs> and uh, and they don't seem like humans sometimes, given the the extraordinary achievements they've had and the tennis that they're able to produce. But uh, it's nice to remember, isn't it? Sometimes that they are only human after all, and uh, and they've had such long and interesting careers. I mean, they're, they're, there's just so much happened over the course of the last ten, fifteen, even twenty years in the case of Roger Federer. So 
any more for any more, folks? Any more rubbishness? In the future, definitely. But but for now. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> what future rubbishness? Still Just the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everything's rubbish, folks. It's gonna be rubbish yeah. for a while, I'm afraid. But um, <laughs> there we are. We're we're uh, we're trying to laugh through it all. Bit of gallows humour here at the tennis podcast. Hope you're enjoying that element of it with us. Um it's the end of worst fortnight we will be back on monday with another tennis podcast because it's more tennis relived we're going back to madrid given that it is madrid final weekend it's supposed to be coming up right now catherine's supposed to be there she's not oh. so uh mm-hmm. anyway we're going back in time to uh to watch together simona Halep against maria sharapova from 2014 cracking final uh, we'll be hearing from uh, Maria Sharapova's coach from that period as well. Um, and we are going to watch Blue Clay Year 2012 and uh, remember Roger Federer against Thomas Burdick uh, in the final on Blue Clay, which uh, which will be fascinating. So uh, do watch those with us over the weekend if you'd like and then listen to us on the Tennis Podcast on Monday. Um, and yeah, that just about brings our business to an end for another edition of the show but what one thing we did want to do just before we go is um, mention our mascot for the year butler you may have heard us talking about butler whose wonderful owners brad and russell have uh, have backed the tennis podcast in our kickstarter we crowdfund every year and they they were so generous in in putting up butler to to sponsor us and um yeah, we've had some very sad news, Catherine. Yeah, um, desperately sad news um, that that Butler unexpectedly passed away. Um, I'm so so sorry to um, to have to report that, and I'm so sorry for for Russell and Brad um, and what they're going through at the moment because uh, I can tell that he was a much loved dog, um, and he brought a lot of joy to their lives and to their families' lives and to ours. He was a wonderful mascot from the moment uh, Russell and Brad sent us the picture of Butler wearing the Grigor Dimitrov Australian Open 2020 tracksuit. I fell completely in love Um, and in a very short period, Butler provided us with some truly epic tennis podcast content. and yeah, we're thinking of you, Russell and Brad, and we thank you for your support. And I hope you're getting a bit of cheer from uh, from the podcasts at the moment. Yeah, same same from all of us, uh, Russell and Brad. We're thinking of you. So thanks, folks, for listening to us once again here on the Tennis Podcast. We'll be back with you on Monday. We've got loads of other plans for the next couple of months. Tennis. We don't need tennis to talk about tennis. That's us here on the Tennis Podcast. See you next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.